If you've got a Bible with you, would you turn to Romans chapter 12? There's page numbers on the back of the pink sheet. If it's a church Bible, that may help you. Romans chapter 12, for those who don't know, we've been going through Paul's letter to the Romans on and off for quite a while. And we've got to chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. And I think it's going to come up on the screen as well, if that helps you. Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. We've been in verse 1 for the past three weeks and now we're in hearing from verse 2 today. Verse 2 and we're going to try to do the whole verse. There is so much that is helpful and attractive in this verse. Our society is in a mess, isn't it? It's in a mess, it's confused, it's inconsistent, it's racked with problems and it pressurises us to be like it. How are we going to avoid that? How are you going to not go along with the crowd? Well, this verse shows us how. This verse shows us how to have a life that's different, that's distinctive. And this verse shows us how to have a a well-thought-through, consistent life. And this verse isn't just for the really good, able people who can manage it themselves. Now, all of that is something worth listening to, isn't it? So, let's get into Romans 2. Well, actually, uh, 12 verse 2. Before we do, let's get it in context. Verses 1 and 2 were originally one long sentence. Just one long sentence. And that means that verse 2 is telling us how to do verse 1, which we've been in for the last few weeks. Verse 2 is telling us how to offer our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. And that means that verse 2 flows from the start of verse 1. It all starts with this. What does it start with? Verse 1, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to do what follows. It's all because of God's mercy. It means we cannot do any of this. You can't do what we're hearing from verse 2 unless and until you've received God's mercy. Think of it like this. What do you think of a caterpillar trying to fly? What do you think of a caterpillar trying to fly? Hopeless, isn't it? Totally hopeless. It's got to become a butterfly. That's what it was designed for, wasn't it? It wasn't designed to spend its whole life crawling along the ground as a caterpillar. Now, trying to do these verses is hopeless unless and until you've had God's mercy change you into his child. And that's what you were designed for. Not to spend your whole life crawling along in sin. But to be changed so you can do this. So, I hope you'll understand me if I say now, don't be a caterpillar trying to fly. But also, don't stay a caterpillar crawling along the ground. No, cry to God for his mercy to change you. And then when you've received mercy from God, what do you do? Well, the answer is verse 2. That's what you should do when you've received mercy. Do verse 2. So, we're going to see what verse 2 tells us now. And the first thing is, be different. 
be different. The first part of verse 2, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. Be different. Now let's first of all think, how does this follow from the gospel? We've been hearing the gospel in Romans, and then it says, now be different from the world. How does that follow? Oh, it definitely follows. Because in the Old Testament, God's people, Israel, were to be different from the nations around them. God, in Exodus 19, when he's got them out of Egypt and he's making them into a nation, he says to them, you are to be a holy nation. That is different. Then he gave them loads of laws to show them how to be different. In the New Testament, God's people, the church, are the new Israel. And so, for example, in 1 Peter 2, it quotes Exodus 19 and says to the church, you are a holy nation. You are now to be different. In other words, God's plan was in the Old Testament and still is in the New Testament to have a people who are distinct, a people who are different from those around them. That's God's plan. That's what the gospel's about. Or at least it's a large part of it. But on top of that, we have another reason to be different now. Look in verse 2 again. Verse 2, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. But the word world there is actually the word age. Do not conform to this age. Now, world is a fine translation there. It's a very sensible translation because, for example, at school children learn about the Iron Age, don't they? That means the world at that time. Or they might learn about the Age of Steam. That means society and and the world in the Industrial Revolution. So, world is correct, but literally it's the word age, because this world, ever since mankind rebelled, has been in the age of sin. We split it out, don't we? Iron Age, Age of Steam, Bronze Age, but it's all been the age of sin. That's this world. But the message of the Gospel is, a new age has broken in. When Jesus rose from the grave to the throne, a new age broke in. All authority in heaven and on earth was given to him and the age of the kingdom of God started. We are living, that means, in an overlap of two ages. It is still that age of sin, but it's overlapping now with the age of the kingdom of God when Jesus rules. We are in the overlap of two ages The kingdom of God has broken in, yet it's still the age of sin carrying on. It's a little bit like this. In the 1970s, Filipinos on a remote island were getting attacked and some were getting killed. What was going on? Who was attacking them? Well, it turned out there was a Japanese soldier there attacking them because he didn't think the war had finished and he was carrying on fighting. Fancy that, 1970s. That's a long time after 1945. And he carried on attacking them until they had to get someone high-ranking from the Japanese government to come and to persuade him the war has ended. Hand over your arms and stop fighting. Now, in the world, most people are like that Japanese soldier. They don't recognise Jesus has won and he rules. And so they're still fighting him. And they will stay fighting him until he returns. 
Do you see, it's rather like that Filipino island, except instead of one Japanese soldier, it's the majority population have not faced up to who's won the battle. And they need him to return and forcibly show them. So we're in the overlap of the ages. So Galatians 1 says, this is the present evil age. But 1 John 2 says, this age is passing away. Because the kingdom of Jesus is growing and he's going to come back. And Christians are to be people who recognise that. They see who's won. They see we're in the overlap of the ages. We're in this world, but we belong to God's kingdom. And that is an extra reason not to be shaped by this age, this world. Okay, I've tried to explain there what the phrase means, but then... What's it like in practice? What does this mean for you and me in practice? Well, it means, first of all, we we better recognise that the world is all the time shaping us. It's just bound to, isn't it? Keep on shaping us all the time. Here's a silly little example. I remember being on holiday in Swanage, and it was a typical British holiday, except worse than usual. It poured with rain all week. And it was before the school holidays had started, so there were school trips on. Now, quite a few groups of teenagers on school trips walking around the town and the coast around Swanage. And in the pouring rain, none of them had waterproofs on. Why didn't they have waterproofs on? Well, you don't want to be an anorak, do you? They'd rather be a drowned rat than be an anorak. Yeah? You see, peer pressure. Now, that doesn't really matter, does it, unless they died of pneumonia. But the world also shapes us in all sorts of ways that do matter. I reckon in the past the church was much more aware of this than it is today. Okay, in the past its response was sometimes simplistic. Its response was a bit like this. Don't be worldly. That means don't go to the pub, don't go to the cinema and don't wear makeup. By the way, some people said, do you know where the word cosmetics comes from? It's the Greek word cosmos, which is the Greek word for the world. There we go. If you're wearing cosmetics, you're worldly. Right? I I won't look hard to see if you are. I'm no good at telling, actually. But that was a rather simplistic response to what it means to be worldly. But I think we've swung too far the other way. We are too careless. We are too reluctant to be seen to be different. And we're too suspicious of having hard and fast rules as well. But when it says in verse 2, don't conform any longer to the pattern of this world, it's not just about the cinema, the pub and cosmetics. A very helpful verse for seeing something of what it means is 1 John 2 verse 16, which I think will come on the screen. 1 John 2 verse 16, which says, For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, The lust of his eyes and the boasting of what he has and does comes not from the Father, but from the world. Did you notice there were three characteristics there of the world? One was the cravings of sinful man. Now, our world says to us, doesn't it, you are just a body. Pamper your body, indulge your body, flaunt your body, because you are really just a body. Our world says, don't restrain your appetites, you'll give yourself a psychological problem. Now, I know it doesn't just say that. Our world is so inconsistent because it's keen on health and looking good, isn't it? So it says, well, do restrain eating too many McDonald's that that boy was keen on for his special meals. 
but don't restrain your sexual appetites. No, you give yourself a psychological problem and, you know, do what your body wants. Now, a person can be a respectable member of the church and yet living to indulge appetites. Don't have too simplistic an idea of what worldliness is. What was the other description of the world in in that verse? The lust of the eyes. Now, isn't this true? Everywhere you go, the world is getting you by the eyeballs. Whether it's billboards, TV ads, the internet, films, all the time it's getting you by the eyeballs and saying, that is what you need. This is desirable. That will make your life worthwhile. Now, a person could be a pillar of the church and yet driven by these messages of the world, living by what he sees. What's the third thing here? The boasting of what he has and does, or some translations have the pride of life, but the boasting of what he has and does is is quite helpful there. Right from the start, the world gets us living by proud comparisons. Have you thought about how it's right from the start? You know, parents have a baby, and what do they start thinking about pretty quickly? Oh, look, my baby started walking before her baby. Yes? My toddler started talking after her. Oh, dear. Right. And it's comparisons, isn't it? Right from the start. Yes, and they go to school and straight away, what is it? Comparisons. How are they doing? What's their ability? How does it compare with the neighbours? Proud comparisons are drummed into us right from our earliest years, aren't they? Boasting, pride, how do we compare? This is the way of the world, and if we're honest, it's the way of us too, isn't it? Being shaped by the world is about much more deeply ingrained attitudes than just do you go to the pub, the cinema, or wear the cosmetics. Now, I'd like at this point to go into and look at some of the particular characteristics of our society and think about how they got into us. But we haven't got time for that. We need to move on. So have a think about that yourself sometime. Have a talk about that. It'd be quite interesting, wouldn't it, to ask people here who are from a different culture, what do they see in our society that, that surprises them and it's got into us? That's well worth thinking about. But we haven't got time now, we're going to move on. We're not to be like the world, well, how can we be different? The rest of the verse tells us. So let's move on. Secondly, be changing. So we've had be different, now be changing. Second part of our verse says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. What does it mean? Well, do you see the contrast? Don't be conformed, but be transformed. Don't be like that world, but be different. Be different from the world by being changed. That's what transformed means, being changed. And it's a word that means it's an ongoing change. It doesn't just happen at conversion. You need an ongoing being changed. Well, how are you going to be changed? Well, look at verse 2 again. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. A life changed by a mind made new. Now this letter of Romans that we've been in for a long time is a consistent, well-written message and it all fits together. So if you can turn back to Romans 1, do that and have a look at Romans 1 verse 28. Romans 1 verse 28. 
Romans 1 is a dreadful description. I'm not commenting on the quality of the writing, but on what dreadful things it describes. A dreadful description of sinners. And in that description of sinners, it says this, verse 28. Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. Now, do you see the pattern here is people push God aside. I don't want him. I'll do my own thing. And they think it will be fine. They can be good without God. But it says, no, if you push God aside, he'll give you over to your mind going wrong. A mind that just doesn't get right what is right and wrong. And then, do you see, at the end of the verse, the result of a mind gone wrong is actions going wrong. Do you get the pattern? God pushed aside, a mind going wrong, actions going wrong. And the whole letter of Romans is the message of that being put right, us being made new. So we instead desire God, and mind is made right, and then right actions follow. Possibly the clearest example of this is Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6 gives us this very clearly. Verse 4 says, We were therefore buried with him, buried with Jesus, through baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. It says, through Jesus God's given us new life. What should we do about it? Verse 11, in the same way count yourselves dead to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Think as the new person. You see, God's made you a new person, now think as the new person. What does that result in? Verse 12, therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Now act as the new person. You see, first you need God to make you the new person. Then you think as the new person. Now act as that new person. In other words, we are to be continually changed by continually getting our mind more and more in line with what God has made us. Now, maybe it could be illustrated by thinking about the opposite, people not thinking through who they are. In schools, children are taught, aren't they? They're just animals. I, don't, I know they don't say those words, you are just an animal, but they're taught. You're just animals. You're just a product of evolution. You're just an accidental chemi- collection of chemicals. That's the implication, isn't it, of what they're taught. But then they are not taught to think through what that identity means. So they serve beef, not humans, at the school canteen. They serve healthy young cows, not unhealthy elderly people at the school canteen. And they even illogically teach these children that the weak and the disadvantaged should be valued. So we should be thankful that evolutionary atheists are inconsistent, shouldn't we? Yeah, I hope you've seen the inconsistency. You're just a bunch of chemicals that have evolved. You're just an advanced animal. is inconsistent with those other things. But it's a good job they're inconsistent. But Christians shouldn't be. No, we should think through what our identity, as people made new in Christ, what that identity means. How do we do that? So that was the what. What does this phrase mean? Now, how do we do that? Well, 
What is going into your mind each week? Just have a think about what's going into your mind each week. Dealing with pressures of family and work and decisions to make. Isn't that, doesn't that occupy your mind a lot? It has to. Can't avoid that. Things you watch. What you read. Do you read books? Read anything? Going into your mind? Messages that social media gives. Adverts all around you. Even if you hardly notice them, they're going in. Conversations that you have. All the time, your mi- our minds are like sponges in a bath, aren't they? They're just being soaked in messages all the time. So we, what we need to do is we need to soak them in. We need to feed them on God's message. Because all the time they're getting given opposing messages. We need to soak them in, feed them on God's message. So come to church. That's one of the reasons we come to church, isn't it? To listen to God's word. To sing truths about who he is and who we are. And then come again. Because once on a Sunday is tiny, isn't it, compared with the messages that your mind is soaking in all week. And get into a pattern of regularly reading the Bible. And talk to other Christians about issues you face. So that you get a some Christian input on them. In our verse, verse 2, it says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That word renewing means this is a continual activity and therefore it needs continual feeding of your mind. But our phrase also says, this will transform you. How does it transform you? I hope you've started to see, but we get a bit more from the next part of the verse. The next part of the verse, I'm calling this be consistent. I hope you'll see why by the end. Be consistent. It says, then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing and perfect will. Now, how does this link to what we've seen so far? Well, I'll try to explain. First of all, you've got to realise, when it says God's will, it doesn't mean whom should I marry or what job should I do. The sort of questions we usually think about, it doesn't mean that. No, it means how should I obey God? What in this situation will please God? And it's saying, when we are renewing our mind by thinking about who God has made us, then we will be able to see what he wants from us. The more we are thinking through who we are in Christ, the more we will see how we should act in this particular situation. That's the pattern across the New Testament. We've already seen it in Romans 6, haven't we? Be renewed by God, then think about what he's made you, and then you'll live this way. You've got it in the very next paragraph. Verse 3 is basically saying, think about what God has given you and who he's made you. And then, verse 6 onwards, is put it into practice to serve the church. If he's given you this gift, use it this way. If he's given you that gift, use it that way. Think about who you are in Christ and then do this. The very next letter was written to a church in Corinth where they were proudly bickering and squabbling. And so the letter says to them, but you're the temple of the Holy Spirit. Recognise that and stop tearing that temple apart by your infighting. To Christians in Ephesus, Paul said, you are the children of light. So keep well away from all that sexual immorality that's going on in your town. 
to the saints in Colossae, he said, you're citizens of heaven, so put to death the characteristics of your earthly nature. You see, a large part of the New Testament is taken up with saying to Christians, understand who you are in Christ, and then these actions will follow. This is how we know God's will. Not questions about who should I marry, what job should I do, where should I live, but how do I please him? How do I obey him? Now there's how this links to the rest of the verse. Next, what, what does this look like? What does this mean we should look like? Now, I wanted at this point to have some pictures on the screen showing what we should look like with some cartoon characters, but I couldn't find the right ones. So you'll just have to try to imagine them. It means we should not look like, try to imagine, a great big body, a great big muscular body, and a shrunken head. We shouldn't look like that. In other words, all activity, but it's not thought through and it's not based on the gospel. That's not what we've got here, is it? This is, this is a very thought through life, not a shrunken head and all action. But also not, and you've, I'm sure, seen cartoon characters like this, a great big head and a tiny body. In other words, this verse isn't saying just learn and learn and learn and learn, but little activity. I think that's something we could be in danger of, couldn't we, if we're honest, the sort of church that Hollywell is. Lots of Bible knowledge, but does it feed through into action? Or is it just storing up knowledge? And not, you'll understand, I couldn't find this picture. Imagine a body melted down in a saucepan and then poured into a jelly mould. In other words, not letting the world shape us into its mould. But instead, you've got a picture a well-proportioned body, head and body in proportions. God having changed your heart and that change of heart having fed through into your mind. So you are thinking rightly in line with what God has made you. And that mind feeding through into the body. So you take actions in line with what God has made you. And in particular, that action we heard a few weeks ago, giving your body as a living sacrifice. Knowing God's will and doing it sacrificially. Now do you see why I called this be consistent? This is a consistent life, a heart changed by God, a mind in line with that and a body that's putting it into practice. Be consistent. Right, I've got one last thing, one last thing. There was a man who thought about who he was. And a man who recognised fully in his mind his relationship with God. And so he went completely against the values of his society. And he did something that shocked the people he was with. He did the job of a servant. And he washed their feet. He offered his body a sacrifice to God by serving the people he was with. And you may recognise that that is Jesus in John's Gospel, chapter 13. He did what our verse from Romans said. And John 13 is quite explicit in this. It's because he thought through and knew who he was. That he resisted the pressures of the world. That's beneath you. Don't do it. No, he had different values. And he offered his body to serve. Serve God by serving others. In other words, he has lived as we should. So that he could die as we deserve. So that we could be saved. Have you been saved by him? Do you belong to him? Are you trusting him? 
And if you have been saved, it doesn't just mean so he could take you to heaven. No, it means so you could be one with him and be like him. Be like him, including in this way. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind.